HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, February 16th, 2022. This is our 315th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an acclaimed mixologist, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Then later, we will have my speed round game industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to mix things up. Yes, try new ventures and experiences. Take risks. Do something that even scares you a little bit and challenge yourself. Don't be afraid to take on various projects and responsibilities and go in a different direction than what you initially planned. You never know what can come of your next move, and you can end up discovering your true calling. That's my tip today. Now, I'm thrilled to have my guest joining me. It is Jim Meehan. He is a bartender, journalist, and author of the PDT Cocktail Book and Meehan's Bartender Manual. He has worked in nearly every capacity of the hospitality business for the latter half of his 40 years on the planet. A Chicago native Gould in Wisconsin, who achieved acclaim for his work behind bars in New York City. He now spends almost as much time on the road at trade shows and trainings as at home in Portland, Oregon. Without further ado, hi, Jim. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Sherry. Thanks for having me. I'm, as I said, thrilled to have you coming in from the West Coast. So, um, Let's get into it. I want to find out what led you into this fabulous career you've established in mixology. So you want to take us back to Chicago or the Chicago area, I believe you grew up in? Yeah, so I grew up in Oak Park uh, in River Forest, Illinois, uh, west suburbs of Chicago. My mom was a, a, a Catholic school teacher and my dad worked at a racetrack. And I um, 
uh, grew up playing basketball and, and, and uh, I had a great English professor in seventh grade and kind of developed a, a sort of love of, of reading and, and sort of dreamt of maybe one day becoming a writer. It was at this time that uh, Michael Crichton's ER was a sort of very popular drama on television. And I became, I was reading Jurassic Park and I learned of that he had a, a medical degree, but also wrote these best-selling novels and produced television. And I was like, that seems like a cool career. And when I uh, went to school, I went to Madison for uh, to go to the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And I was pursuing that pre-med degree when uh, I realized I could use a little bit more money to help pay for pay for clothes and beer and, and books. And, and I picked up a job at a bar called State Street Brats and started working as a door person and worked my way from there to bar backing, to cooking, uh, to bartending. And by the time I was 20, I was a, a, a shift manager at this restaurant, which was a bar that was doubling into becoming a big sports venue that was there to embrace the Packers, which Brett Favre was QB and they were going to Super Bowls and the Badgers were going to Rose Bowls. And I, at that point, I'd, I was um, really kind of falling in love with the work. I loved the um, the sort of make, making drinks was fun. Our, our idol back then was probably Tom Cruise in the movie Cocktail more than the sort of mixologists that, that I uh, admire today. And I... I, I loved everything about it. I loved the, it was a physical job. It was a creative job. I met people I had a very social, you know, it was a very social job. And to be honest, I was struggling in the pre-med classes and I was volunteering at the hospital on the weekends and realized that the, the nurses really did what I thought doctors did. The doctors had these huge caseloads and spent little time with the patients. Whereas the nurses that I was working with were spending most of the time with the patients. And I began to notice uh, forgive me for any of you medical professionals out there listening, the similarities between uh, being a nurse and being a bartender. And, and I, I began to notice the affinities that I had as, as a bartender in building relationships and sort of building community with people and, and the way that hospitals had that, but only for a short time while people were sick. And so um, organic, organic chemistry and calculus really sort of were my death my death classes. And I pretty much dropped those classes, picked up um, classes in French and African-American studies and, and sort of leaned into bartending. I took a year off of school to get residency. And by the time I was back and was talking to people about their careers, I realized that a lot of the people that I met in the bars and restaurants I was working in really sort of like were they most of them didn't love their jobs and their happiest point was coming to the bar. And I realized that like, I actually love my job. And so in right around 1997 or eight, I decided that bartending and working in bars and restaurants would, would be my career. And I ended up uh, finishing school with degrees in English literature and African-American studies. And in 2002, I moved to New York city to sort of see where that, where that could take me. Wow, amazing! I mean, I'm I, I can relate to ER and cocktail movie. I'm a, I feel I think I'm a couple years older, but same same period. And I remember also I went to University of Michigan and I visited a friend who was at Wisconsin in Madison once. And I was just trying as you're speaking, I was trying to think of the bar that remember this bar we went to that was I think there was a 
it was like a boot that they had beer in and passed it yeah. around. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. That, um, that is a very famous bar who's a very, all my Badger friends are going to be mad that I, I think the Crystal Corner might've been it, but it was by the Crystal Corner for sure. But yes, that, and you know, yeah. that might've been the, it was called the Essen House. It was a classic German bar that was famous for being able to like get beer in all these formats, including a boot. So you probably got the Essen House. Yeah, well, I was, it was a, it was Halloween weekend. I remember it being freezing. I, I was just, it was a very fun weekend, but um, uh, yeah, I'm glad I got to experience that. I think it was a couple, as I said, a couple years ahead of you, but it's, um, that's, I mean, it's, it's so, I, I, I'm glad you told, I mean, it's interesting, the comparison with nursing and then also, um, you know, realizing it's a happy place and, and that's what you want to switch to your career to doing because sometimes people just fall into, you know, it's that side hustle job to make some money, but doesn't become their full-time career. So, um, that led you to New York. And so then what, when you got to New York, what, where did you start working? Well, it's interesting when I was in Madison, um, I was, I remember reading Bill Grimes's uh, book straight up around the rocks. And it was a history of sort of cocktails and, and bartending specifically. A lot of it was in New York. Bill Grimes was a New York times restaurant critic. And I also remember getting my hands in 2001 on Dale DeGroff's book, The Craft of the Cocktail. And I was aware that Dale had um, had left the Rainbow Room and opened up his own bar. So I was already aware that there were people like Dale in New York who could mentor me or who I could potentially learn from if I could just get there. And so when I moved to New York, um, I, I applied all over... Uh, I ended up living in the East Village, I, I, uh, right in Stanton and Clinton, uh, right around the corner from a restaurant called WD-50, which had just opened. And I applied to, to bars all over the East Village and the Lower East Side, and no one would hire me as a bartender because I had, I didn't have two years of New York City bartending experience. And back then, you sort of looked at the classifieds, um, Craigslist was just beginning, and and so I, I didn't have that two years of experience and I wasn't really sure how I could get it. Uh, and I thought it was really frustrating because I had seven years of restaurant and bar experience of all types in Madison. Most people thought Wisconsin was like a farm or something like that, like I'm in, <laughs> in New York. And, um, and so I, was, I ended up getting a job at a restaurant called Five Points on Great Jones between Bowery and Lafayette. And they, there was a brunch shift that no one wanted that they gave me. And then they, I trained for months to learn how to wait tables. And I eventually worked my way from waiting tables in that brunch shift to, I think, around four bar shifts. And so Five Points, Vicky Freeman and Chris Praskovades and Mark Meyer and Maureen Meehan, who no relation owned the restaurant as well, really kind of gave me my start in New York City. Amazing. Vicky was a guest on my show a not that long ago, a few months ago. And definitely we talked a bit about five points and that popularity of that brunch. <laughs> so. Yeah. The, the funny thing about no one wanting that brunch shift is I met Vicky introduced me to everybody. You know, I remember Missy Robbins was always there. Jonathan Waxman was always there. Gabriel Hamilton was there. Um, Johnny DeLucy was there. Like I, it just, I, I, Jimmy Bradley and Danny Abrams were there and, 
And through meeting Jimmy and Danny, they had had the Red Cat in Chelsea. And that was a job that I'd always had my eyes on because the Red Cat was a really busy bar restaurant that had only one bartender behind the bar, just like Five Points did in those early days. And uh, from there, so I worked at Five Points for two years um, and it was before Vicky had, uh, and and Mark and Chris had moved on and opened cook shops. So there, there wasn't, they were still focused on Five Points and Jimmy and Danny and I became friends and Jimmy told me about a restaurant he was opening in Tribeca called Pache. Uh, and he, you know, I told him that I was interested and he said he was interested in me and he said I had to go talk to Danny who, and they'd. And so I went and talked to Danny and I told him that I would consider leaving five points if they would create a position where I could be the bar manager and create my own cocktails for the bar and work on the floor as a sommelier. Because what I was really kind of focusing on at that time was wine. And I was really interested in wine. And and Danny said, well, that doesn't that position doesn't exist. And I said, we'll create it. And he did. And so I went down to Tribeca and opened Pache on Hudson and North Moore. And we had... Uh, I was working, one of my bartenders was a bartender named Gabe Stolman, who also came from Madison. Who, yeah, I was thinking um, of that before too. When you, yeah, yeah, so Gabe was uh, one of our bartenders there and Joey Campanero is the chef and their sort of relationship obviously took off there after that at the Little Owl. Um, and it was there that um, I heard about the Pegu Club in, I was there in 2003 and four and I heard about the Pegu Club and from there, I, I sort of was able to maneuver my way into meeting Audrey and, and then uh, eventually finding my way onto the staff, the opening staff of the Pegu Club, and, and as well as uh, transitioning before Pache closed to, to being a bartender at Gramercy Tavern. So for between 2005 and seven, I worked full-time at Gramercy Tavern and uh, just a shift a week at the Pegu Club, which was really a special time. You just, I mean, your history, you just named so many rock stars in our industry. <laughs> yeah, it was totally surreal. Um, the, 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 the doors that, that Vicky, uh, you know, opened up for me at five points and then, and then Jimmy and Danny later, and then, and then being at Gramercy and Pegu club at the same time, I was, I, I took, when I started at Gramercy, I was the first bartender, I think, that they'd hired off the street in seven years. I was the senior bartender a year later. They just experienced this huge shift. And that same year was the year that Danny bought Gramercy Tavern from Tom and installed Michael Anthony as the new chef. And so we have, they did a, a, a renovation, not, not a dramatic one, but they did a renovation and we got re-reviewed. So it was a it was an amazing time to reopen uh, the number one rated Zagat restaurant in New York and get re-reviewed with the, you know, with the longtime chef of Blue Hill. And then as well to be finally like dream come true to not necessarily get to work with Dale, but to get to work with Dale's protege. And then eventually through Audrey meet Dale and Dave Wondrich and Gary Regan. And it just, um, it really sort of between Vicky's introductions and Audrey Saunders and, and Julie Reiner, who was also a partner at, at the Pegu club. It really was uh, a surreal uh, entry into the business. And it really cemented my belief that, you know, moving to New York would, would allow facilitate the sort of mentorship that I'd always dreamed of in Wisconsin. 
Yeah, no, it's amazing. And also this time period you're at, maybe you want to talk a little bit about how cocktail culture was changing. I mean, I feel from those days in in Madison to, I mean, with Pagoo Club and, and I mean, just the way drinks were were thought of or made and just appreciated. I feel like it was a transition period and and maybe now moving where we're at today, if you, I don't know, want to even jump ahead and how things have even progressed further. Yeah. I mean, I think that as I think back now about this time, which is surreally 20 years ago, um, I, the interesting thing is there was a restaurant that, or a restaurant, a cafe that Gabe Stolman and I both worked at in Madison that has since closed called Cafe Momar. And at Cafe Momar, we made fresh juice, classic cocktails. And, and, and I think back to, you know, we made this, there was a, a, a bar on the side called the sidecar. And so the, the classic, you know, sidecar was made there. We made fresh juice Cosmos and margaritas. And, um, it was, it was very, it was a very sort of progressive, cool place. And then when I moved to New York, I remember Five Points had a really sort of famous, we did $5 martinis and dollar oysters for happy hour. And the, I always was frustrated by the fact that like the, the martinis were not classic martinis, they were fruit juice martinis. So it was very much the sort of day of, you know, the, the Carrie Bradshaw and, and, and sort of that, that age of, of New York. And the big change for, for me and for cocktail culture, the sort of turning point, I think, was a, a bar called Milk and Honey, which mm-hmm. is now called Attaboy, uh, which is run by the Sasha Petrowski's, two of his longtime bartenders, Sam Ross and Michael McElroy. And, and I remember that the restaurant around the corner, WD-50, their head bartender was named was Eben Freeman. Eben and I became friends. And in 2003, Eben we closed WD-50 and he, he got a reservation at, at Milk and Honey and took me down to the Lower East Side. And I remember sitting in a booth with Eben. Joseph Schwartz um, was waiting tables who ended up going on and opening Little Branch with Sasha. And Toby Maloney was behind the bar who ended up being our opening head bartender at the Pegu Club and going on to open the Violet Hour and the Patterson House and Brad Street Cafe in Minneapolis and, and is now um, involved in... Um, in New York, uh, bartending's, I, th- I think he's between New York and, and, and Chicago, but, but anyway, I had a cocktail at Milk and Honey in 2003 called the gold rush that just, it, it absolutely floored me. It was just a simple combination of bourbon, lemon juice, and honey. It was served in a frozen double old fashioned glass with a hand carved huge chunk of ice with a metal straw on top of a dental napkin by two guys who looked like extras in Boardwalk Empire long before Boardwalk Empire existed. <laughs> and um, it was that point I realized that the sommelier path was, was no longer the path that I needed to focus on, but instead I needed to really figure out what they were doing at Milk and Honey. And so that really changed my, the trajectory of my whole career uh, and, and brought into focus what I, what I, been doing since 1995, which was bartending, which was a very exciting time. And I think that that working at the Pegu Club under Audrey, she really, you know, she, I I was like a a very raw talent, uh, full of enthusiasm, but I didn't have the skills and and working with 
for Audrey and Julie and then working with that guys like Toby and Phil Ward and Sam Ross and Brian Miller and Chad Solomon, Eric Simpkins, um, really sort of just changed my whole, changed the whole course of my career. Yeah. Well, these, I mean, incredible, incredible people that you cross paths with or got to know. And um, yeah, again, the rock star list. It's like, it's amazing. Um, so many good people in our industry that have done great things. I should mention my longtime squeeze at, at the Pegu Club was uh, a bartender who came on later named Sinjin Frizzell. <laughs> and it's really kind of cool as I like look back now that I don't live in New York, just to see what what Sinjin is is doing there. Um, the restaurant that they've just opened looks absolutely incredible. What's it What's it called? Do you know? He, he has a, it's a bar. He has a, um, a rum bar called Sunken Harbor. And then they have a, it's a Brooklyn, an old school Brooklyn institution that he's just opened, whose name, of course, I'm totally spacing on right now. Um, give me a All second. All good. Yeah, but it, it's just... <laughs> It's, it's really sort of inspiring to see how many of my colleagues have gone on to just do amazing things um, since, yeah. since we've all left the Pegu Club. Yeah, it, really, it truly is. So, so what led you out to Portland and, and how, how's the scene out there uh, these days? Um, I feel like the, I mean, it's funny. We, the, sorry, the restaurant that, um, so funny. Are you trying to think of it? Yeah, it's Gage and Tolner. Sorry about that. Oh, um, I've, that place is amazing. And yeah. the drink, yes. <laughs> I so love that Gage, restaurant. So it's actually, revival. Yeah. Bringing Sinjin, Sinjin ended up partnering with his former boss and uh, his two sort of former bosses at the Good Fork in Red Hook. And the funny thing is that the there's a whole story with, uh, my sort of intro to PDT where the one of the uh, owners of PD, who was opening or working on the build out for PDT was happened to be talking about me at Sinjin's bar in Red Hook at the Good Fork. Sinjin said, oh, I work with Jim at the Pegu Club. And that ended up being how I got my opportunity to open the Pegu or to open PDT. So it's just it's such a sort of small world going back to you know, Vicky Freeman and, and, mm -hmm. and Audrey and, and, and Sinjin, how it just, um, how it all kind of came together. I, I think to get to, to Portland, I mean, it's the Portland experience was in some ways exciting, but in some ways, um, kind of not sad, but I, but I guess, um, when I moved to New York in 2002, I always kind of joked to myself, that if I became a millionaire, you know, I'd stay. And, and after 12 years in New York city, it just, it, it became increasingly, um, I just kind of became increasingly aware that, that, um, my days there were limited. My wife, I, I ended up, um, falling in love with my coworker at Gramercy Tavern and marrying her, um, about a year and a half later. So in 2000 and, Seven, I opened PDT in 2008. I got married uh, to um, Valerie, then Simi, now Mian. And we, in 2013, uh, Valerie gave birth to our first child, Olivia. And so at that time, um, 
a lot of my friends, you know, had had were beginning to start having kids and a lot of them moved right, you know, before they had right before they had kids and sort of like panicked and said, oh, I need more space. And we'd seen that enough of that and talked to enough of those people to realize that, like, as soon as you have a kid, you actually don't need more space, you know, because your baby is going to be sleeping in the same room with you for quite some time. But I mean, at a certain point, you do ideally need more space. You know, ideally, your baby will not be sleeping in your room your whole life and you'd like an extra room. And so, yeah, um, so. <laughs> yeah exactly. And, and and we actually had friends in Stytown whose who's, who's two kids were living with them. And right. I, and I think it's that, New um, York City. I mean, <laughs> exactly. And, and I think Val, I think Val might have um, endured that much longer than I was. And, and I just sort of was doing the math. And my wife was, she left Gramercy, ended up going to work um, with Gabe at, um, at his new restaurant with Mikey Price over in the West Village and called Market Table. And then she went and opened Danny Meyer's restaurant, Mylino. And then Gabe hired her back to be the GM at Market Table. And then when she had Olivia you know, there was an expectation from Mikey Price, the chef owner, that that she would kind of be able to come back, you know, to, to resume her responsibilities. And we sort of looked at each other and it just didn't make sense for us to put one of, you know, nearly her, either her whole salary or, or a lot of mine into having someone else raise our kids. And I was just doing the math and it didn't add up. So a lot of moving to Portland had to do with just, the math not really adding up to to have kids there and and I was traveling at that point um based on the the success of PDT and the success of the PDT cocktail book and the and and ha- having helped launch a rum brand called Banks I was traveling all the time I was gone you know at least two or three times a month and it I was gone so much that that New York New York's a great city to work in, but if you're traveling out of it, it can be really kind of exhausting. And so I sort of presented the idea to all of the people I was working with and said, Hey, you know, what do you think about me doing my job from Portland, Oregon instead of New York? And everyone sort of like looked at me funny and they're like, Well, you're never here anyway. And so in 2014, we sort of quietly uh, I, you know, packed up our stuff and and moved across the country to Portland. And it was a, um, it was tough for Val grew up in, she was born in Boston and was raised in New Jersey. So it was tough for her to leave the East coast. And I think it was secretly tough for me to also leave, but I was excited about the opportunity to kind of come out here. And, and as I think about my New York experience, you know, they, they always say, if, you know, if you can't make it, you know, if you make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. And, you know, sort of New York is always talked about as a land of opportunity. And I very much believe that it it was for me um, as a, you know, a kid who kind of didn't, you know, whose dad was a worked at a racetrack and mom was a Catholic school teacher who didn't grow up there had, you know, it was a um, people took me in, you know, and I think a lot of people were focused on how hard I worked and and what I was willing to do f- and not where I, where I came from. So, but I really felt at a certain point that we needed to get out of there. And so we moved here and really for a number of years, I continued to like sort of oversee PDT from, a, from afar. 
and open a new branch in Hong Kong. And, and I worked on my second book and continued to work on behalf of the rum brand and, and then also continued to grow an opportunity that I got at, at Food and Wine Magazine with the American Express Centurion Lounges. And we, when I left New York, we had just opened our first lounge in Las Vegas. And today we have 20. So it, it's just been, um, for a number of years, I was really just managing my New York career from Portland. And it really wasn't until the last two years that I've finally been able to break into the scene in Portland and help open a restaurant here called Takibi. And that was um, obviously has been a, a real challenge because of the pandemic, but it's been joyful to finally be able um, to sort of meet people and, and share what I do and how I do it with people here in Portland. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm due for a trip back. I've been out there twice for Feast Portland, yep. which was yep. fantastic every time I, both times I went. Um, and no, you know, have a little bit of a sense of the, of the, the bar and restaurant scene out there, but I, I would, yes, I'm sure things have developed more and be great to get out there and check out your space. And, and this that you, when did, 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 when did you launch Mixography Inc.? Because um, so is that funny? Yeah, it's a funny question. When I was in New York, I was helping um, a lot of my heroes, the this super group of um, sort of bartending gurus, Dale DeGroff, David Wondrich, uh, Steve Olson and Doug Frost, who were who were more well known in the wine world, but who were also like deep spirits geeks. Paul yeah. Packelt, uh as well, and Andy Seymour had created a, a sort of school called Bar Five Day. Bar was an acronym for Beverage Alcohol Resource. And they um, expanded the Bar Five Day class into uh, a program for Pernod Ricard called Bar Smarts. And through Bar Smarts, I got to travel with some of the um, people who had graduated from the Bar Five Day class to help put on these large events where people sort of did a module of the bar five-day class and got a certification. And so I was traveling all over the country with the bar guys and Pernod Ricard and, and Paul Packelt was, was um, he, for the first year, I think, I think that like some of us, like I remember Willie Shine and Aisha Sharp had a consulting company called Contemporary Cocktails, but most of us were just, you know, bartenders. And so Paul was writing us checks to, you know, to Jacques Bezadenhout or Jim Meehan. And I think in the second year, his accountant was like, you know, it, you know, it's better that if you pay these guys, it's better if these guys have their own companies, you know, there's less, you know, tax concern. So the next year, Paul insisted that all of us found our own companies in order to be part of Bar Smarts and Bar. And so at that point, I, I got a lawyer and, and created a company called Mixography Inc. And it was... Yeah. This term mixography was a, a, a term I'd heard David Wondrich use to describe the sort of research that he was doing around cocktails that was beyond, wasn't just history, it was, it was a form of anthropology that he called mixography. And so I liked it and, uh, and that's what I named my company. And so that was, that was how it started. And I've really, at, at points I'd always thought that maybe I could, turn it into an agency and hire other people. But, um, 
that would require me being more organized than I am. So that's how it started. <laughs> um, yeah, but, but, but you have and you have that, the Instagram handle too. Yeah, I mean, I did the thing you're supposed to do when you open a company. You sort of well, you know, you take, not you take everyone the, does that. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, from a you know business side, I took the Instagram handle, I took the Twitter yeah. handle. I, I have a website that has all of my work on there, and and I keep that up to date. And uh, yeah, I mean, at some point, I always thought that this thing could potentially grow. Yeah, no, it's 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 wonderful. I mean, when I the word I associate with you, like so you own the word as far as I, I'm concerned. <laughs> um, before we take a break, let's, uh, let me ask you my question for my last guest. On episode 314, I had on Ariel Pallets. She is the Senior Executive Director for the Office of Nightlife for NYC Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment, and she's the first that was appointed in this position. And she wants to know, how do you feel after the experience you've gone through over the past two years and what keeps you optimistic moving forward? Um, I think that, you know, my one word answer is shattered. Um, I feel like this has been an absolutely, um, it's just the hardest two years um, of my 25 year plus career. But I think that what keeps me optimistic is that um, we've seen as as a sort of social justice reckoning has been combined with the challenges of the pandemic, we're beginning to see the seeds of a new industry that's that's really taken a really hard look at um, at the labor practices in restaurants and bars and and in, in from management you know, down to the way colleagues treat each other. And, and we're, we're taking a hard look at things like, you know, the legacy of tipping and, and sexual harassment and, and uh, biases from race to gender, to ageism, to sex, you know, sexual preference. And, and I begin, I think that while it's been a, a really difficult time, obviously the logistically because of the pandemic, just, opening restaurants and operating them safely. I think we've had the social justice issues that have, we've, we've had more time since we're not busy in these restaurants working to take a hard look at what, what's going on and how we run these things. And while we're nowhere near an equitable uh, sort of path forward, I think that the new generation of, of operators is, is hell bent on making this a, a better industry in a safer, more equitable industry for those who are, who are involved in it. And I couldn't be more grateful, uh, for their, for their leadership and for their, for them standing up for, for a better, you know, future in this industry for those who want to be part of it. Yes. Well, well said. And on that note, let's take a little break. We will come back. We'll play my speed round game talk some industry news. I have my solo dining experience and the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. 
In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Jim Meehan. He's a bartender, journalist, and the author of the PDT Cocktail Book and Meehan's Bartender Manual, and he's the founder of Mixography, Inc. So, Jim, it's time for my speed round. Are you ready? I'm ready. Cool. What this is, is I'm going to name a couple things, and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Okay. All right. Here we go. Eat in at home or eat out at a restaurant? During the pandemic, at home. Gotcha. Indoor dining or al fresco dining? Uh, during the pandemic, al fresco. <laughs> Wait, say it again. I missed outdoor. Uh, what? Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah, an outdoor yeah. pandemic diner. Got it. Um, I used to be an indoor and a restaurant eater, but uh, this pandemic has changed my dining and eating habits. Yeah. Well, the pandemic changed my speed round too, because I used to just say eat in or eat out and everyone was getting confused. So I made it more specific. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. How about wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Hmm. Champagne. Champagne. Tasting menu or a la carte? Uh, tasting menu. Small plates or large plates? Small plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Uh, both. Both. Okay. Okay, a few more. Dive bars or fancy cocktail bars? Fancy cocktail bars. <laughs> Super fancy. Very fancy. Uh, shaken or stirred? Stirred. Cheese plate or dessert? Dessert. Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Portland? Uh, Manhattan. Woohoo. You you got the speed. Most no, no one ever gets the speed of the game, but you got it. I know what I know what I like. <laughs> you certainly do. That was great. Very cool. Yeah, I have to say those early questions are, you know, the pandemic has has really sort of changed the way that we live, you know, and I think that I hope that when it's over that some things can go back to what they call normal, but I think that you know, realistically like this pandemic will change everything. Yeah, it has. And it did it, it. Yeah, certainly. And I think it's changed. Yeah, it's changed people's responses and just how they feel in general. So yeah, I agree. Uh, I, um, so for industry news this week, I picked out two articles that uh, covering the beverage industry that I figured who who would be better to talk to about than you. Uh, so the first one was on CNBC, and it's entitled, Tequila Could Overtake Vodka as America's Favorite Liquor as Sales Boom. This is by Amelia Lucas. Came out a couple, well, actually came out on the 5th. So it's like 
week and a half ago. Um, so it's it's saying tequila and mezcal um, was the fastest growing spirits category in 2021, and that it's only now trailing vodka a little bit, and they think in a few years it could pass it as the number one. Um, is this something you're you you would have predicted as well, or is he coming? Um, it is somewhat predictable following the Casamigas uh, sale and. It, in the wake of Terramania's, I mean, the, the rocks tequila sold something like I, I just, I sold some astronomical, like 700,000 cases, you know, in its first year, it's just, um, I think the rock, you could literally look at the rock and sort of, and that would be like the one word answer to that, to that question. I, I mean, tequila and the margarita has been the most popular cocktail in America for quite some time. And, and tequila, has been gaining popularity, but I think that spirits have always, uh, the success of spirits have always had a connection to Hollywood and, and how they've been used in, in film and TV. So the, this emergence, uh, is unsurprising to me considering the most popular a actor in Hollywood, um, has a very popular tequila brand on his hands now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, this article mentioned celebrities in, in the game for sure. It also, um, it also had a, another friend of the industry in there, uh, Tony Abuganin quoted talking about tequila, um, how he was saying how it's also, um, taken away a bit from people who, who often would drink beer, let's say when going to, to sporting events that I think, as you said, like with margaritas and just, and even people I think just drink straight, just like good tequila. This is correct. Yeah. I was looking at LeBron James over the weekend uh, at the Super Bowl, who also has, I think is partnered in a tequila brand. So I think that the, the ease with which celebrities can um, create uh, tequila brands and, and, and the, the impact they have as drivers of consumer interest and sales is, is something that you can trace all the way, you know, back a hundred years into Hollywood. And, and I think it's um, their, their impact on as much as I would like to think that like a, a Tony Abuganum or, or Dale DeGroff or Audrey Saunders or a Julie Reiner, you know, has, you know, great impact, like, like some of America's great chefs do I, the, the way that's what celebrities drink has always driven, uh, volume and sales and interest in America. So it's, I, I have to say that I, I definitely not with nothing against vodka. I, I've, I've always really liked tequila and I think that it's, it's an exciting, uh, I'm, I'm happy to hear that tequila could overtake vodka. I think it's been vodka since the seventies. So why not tequila now? Why not tequila? <laughs> and my other article I had was on Inside Hook, and it's entitled How the Espresso Martini Took Over America, Cocktail Trends Come and Go. Is this one here to stay? And this was by Osta Samvichian Clausen, and this came out on Valentine's Day. And so this, this is interesting. Oh, I don't think it's interesting. The Espresso Martini, which I have to admit or say, I've never had one. Uh, it's a, It says it was a trend, big trend in the 90s. It kind of disappeared a little bit, but it's it's coming back strong now. But from what I've heard or read, or uh, I don't think bartenders particularly enjoy making it. Like, 
maybe it's too, and I'm not, I don't know, maybe you could speak to that. How, what's your feel for espresso martinis? Well, the, the original uh, espresso martini was the vodka espresso made by Dick Bradsell in London. Um, I'm not sure if he had launched it at the Atlantic bar um, or the Met bar, which one of the bars he ran, but um, the Europe, if you, in Europe, a lot of bars and, and cafes have an espresso machine by, like right behind the bar. And so making an espresso martini would involve literally turning around, pulling a shot and then dumping the shot into the shaker, which back in the nineties would have definitely had, uh, you know, a, a well of vodka because the vodka martini was so popular. So you can see where the, where the drink came from. And I would say that in America, the challenge, especially in 2022 is most bars and restaurants don't have an espresso machine right behind the bar. A restaurant will have an espresso machine, but it usually that that'll be in like an, a coffee station where brewed coffees and teas and, and maybe like some dish polishing goes on as well. So I yeah. think that the only challenge in, in really making this drink properly is that when you make uh, an espresso martini, you want to get that espresso shot really fresh right into your shaker get ice on top of it really and and shake it quickly like a classic shakerado and that's what's going to give you the great sort of like frothy emulsif emulsified uh head on the drink um so i'm excited to hear that this drink has come back because it, obviously i moved to portland because i love uh our coffee culture good, here and, and, and i love yeah i mean we have i think portland has the best coffee in the country so I think that the combination of my favorite beverage with my with my career choice is uh, an exciting thing. But I will say that um, the it's interesting. I, I tried to make an espresso martini this summer for a book I've been working on with caught with a it's called cold brew concentrate, which I've seen others try to use, and it really doesn't give you the same. Uh, head on on the drink it doesn't have the same experience as espresso does so i think that i'm excited about the drink coming back i'm a little doubtful that it's being made properly uh but when made properly it's a great drink cool well it's good to know i mean yeah now i'm thinking bars new bars need to um open up and with uh design enough space so they can have that that coffee machine attached or nearby <laughs> Yeah, and, I mean, a great espresso machine is ten or fifteen thousand dollars. A great grinder's two or three thousand yeah. dollars. I mean, this is a um, to do this drink right. You really got to spend a lot right. of money. So um, I don't know. Good luck. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it was also saying that this that this this drink is still has been popular over the years in in countries like Australia, which has a very strong craft culture, coffee culture. And so, um, and you know, and that relates to your, yeah, Portland's, you guys certainly have amazing coffee scene there. So we'll see. I mean, I get, I get the, I get the appeal of it. If you want some caffeine and, and like a pick, like a double pick me up in a sense. I mean, yep. so. <laughs> yeah. The drink is perfectly, the logic is sound and when made properly, it's a great drink. And, and yeah. like you said, Australia has incredible coffee culture there. So. When done right, this is a fantastic drink. I hope that, um, so I think this, and, and given the popularity of 
Starbucks and really in the way that it's overtaken places like McDonald's as far as fast food goes or as far as the way people, you know, use like like a place like Starbucks as their third place. I think that this is logical, um, just like the rock being, you know, just like tequila becoming the most popular spirit is logical. Um, but I yeah. think that hopefully, it's, you know, just like tequila, you know, like they're some of these popular tequilas, in my opinion, aren't very good. And some of them are fantastic. So I think that there's there's a spectrum of excellence that, that and a lack thereof on, on this. And when done well, I'm, I think it's an, it's a great trend. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. Yeah. Cause there's, there's also this, yeah. Good coffee, bad coffee, good tequila, bad tequila. I don't know across the board as long as everything's the top and making it correctly. So we'll yeah, see. And I think that that's, you know, we all have our own preferences. Yeah. True. True. Okay. So before I do my solo dining experience, I just want to make a little announcement. Very exciting. Today, they announced the 13th Annual Taste Awards, the nominees, and this show, All in the Industry, is nominated for two awards. One of them is in the general category as a Taste Award. It's for Best Single Topic Series. And then the other one is a Viewer's Choice Taste Award for Best Food or Drink Radio Broadcast. And so listeners, you guys can vote and voting starts now through March 11th. And I'm going to put a link on all my social media platforms at all industry. So you can go and check it out. And if you like this show, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you give a little vote, um, the, their main website is the tasteawards.com and a bunch of other heritage radio network shows are nominated as well. So go check it out. And thank you, Taste Awards, and to everyone who, who's listening. It's very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Excited. Okay, so my solo dining experience this week is at Mena. Here's the rundown. The location, 28 Cortland Alley, Tribeca, New York City. The concept, it's a prefix-only restaurant offering technique-driven, globally-inspired plates seen through a South American lens. It's inspired by Chile's coast and diverse geography. The chef and owner is Victoria Blamey. She was born and raised in Santiago, Chile. She is known also for being a chef at Chumley's in New York City and then right before the pandemic at Gotham Bar and Grill. Why did I go? Well, this was Victoria's very first solo restaurant, and I'm a fan of her, so I wanted to check it out my experience. So recently it was a snowy night. I got a reservation for one on the early side. Actually, when I arrived, I was the first person there because they're doing kind of limited seating at this point. It had only been open about a week. It was pretty early to go. Um, I was seated at a banquette near the, the, the front of or by the bar. Um, it's kind of a longish uh, rectangular space. And I could see from uh, the other end of the bar is where the, the kitchen pass is, and I could see Victoria in the window. And later in the evening, I went and said hello to her. Um, so my service was lovely. They actually sent out a a bubbly drink for me as just a courtesy at the beginning, and I exchanged it for a non-alcoholic beverage, and I got a snow chrysanthemum June, which I've had before, and it's really delicious. It's like a honey-based fermented drink. 
Um, I went over the menu with the server and there's four courses and you get to, you had, you get to pick or I got to pick in each category. There were three choices in each of the categories, except dessert was just one dessert. So I made my selections and I sat back and I enjoyed my meal. So what did I get? I got the Kyoto carrot with granada chili. I got a dish that's called chu or chow farsi, and it's a scallop mousse with sea lettuce, and it had a supplement on it. It was $20 extra. I went for it. And I also got pantrucus, which was like a hearty beef stew. Victoria sent out a little taste of this seafood locro, which was a, more of a seafood type stew with snow crab. And then dessert was milk cloud, which is a seaweed ganache with kelp butter and chili and hazelnut. Yes, all of this sounds like dish. I mean, ingredients it, were very different than what I've typically had. But it would, let me say, tell you, it was all super delicious. Uh, my favorites were the this chow farsi dish, which it was just kind of hard to describe, but it was like a, a, a sea lettuce with, with inside was filled with mousse and it had different layers and it had this like savory white sauce. It was just delicious. It was, it was worth the, the, the extra. Um, I also, also favorite was the seafood low, seafood locro. I love that. And the milk dessert, milk cloud dessert was fabulous. Um, it was all great. So the ambiance. So it's a, it's kind of on a, what like a second floor um, attached to the Walker Hotel Tribeca, and it's on this this alleyway. Across the way is Acheval, if you know that restaurant, and it's like a minimalistic dining room, about fifty seats. As a I was seated along the long banquette, and there's the bar up front. It's very nice. Uh, Good, good place to go back to for a drink, I'd say. And I'd say it's perfect for date night if anyone's looking for a place to go for that. Interesting tidbit. Esquire magazine named Victoria Comeback Chef of the Year in 2019. She also received three stars in the New York Times during her very short time at Gotham Bar and Grill, which again was right before the pandemic. She also last year did a three-month residency at Stone Barns, which I didn't go to her her residency, but I heard it was great. And I know, I think she was playing around with some of these flavors and dishes as, as well. Personal fun fact, I ran into Ben Leventhal and his lovely wife, Lizzie, at the restaurant. They were on a date night. Ben is the co-founder of Eater and co-founder and former CEO of Resi. Um, so it was really nice seeing them. The cost of this meal was $115 plus a $20 supplement not including tax and gratuity. So it was a little bit of a splurge, but worth it. Would I go back? Yes, their website is menanyc.com, Instagram at menarestaurantnyc. So there you go. Have you, um, Jim, did you ever have Victoria's food? Maybe go to Chumley's? No, I went to Chumley's um, like probably in, in the 90s, but I never, uh, I never got to go after they reopened, after they did the big renovation. But I, I remember reading about her um, and, and really sort of like wishing I could have checked that out. That sounds like a great dinner. Yeah, it was great. And this, she's, you know, she's doing food that's very personal to her. I think you know, Chumley's, it was, I mean, I remember having the burger there. She made this fantastic burger, but there's no burger on this menu. She's just like gone a completely different direction. So that's very cool. Well, it's worth checking out when you, if, and when you get back to New York city. Yeah. I got to get, I got to 
get to Gage and Tolner first, but after Gage and Tolner, that'll be my second restaurant. I, and if you need someone or you want someone to meet you there, I totally would go back. I've, I've actually been twice, once by myself and once with a friend, but both times we sat at the, I was at the bar because it's yep. just a great bar. <laughs> it's a great dining wait. room in general, but yeah. yeah, you'll love it. Okay. So it's time for the final question. My next guest is chef and owner Zod Arafe. He is his restaurant is Wicked Jane, which is a newer restaurant that opened in New York City in Greenwich Village. It features modern American cuisine with a tasting menu and a la carte options. I was working with Zod when he initially launched his restaurant. Now we're still he's not a he's not currently a client, but he's a friend and I'm super excited to um, talk to him about his restaurant and his experience. So, Jim, can you please ask a question for Zod? Yeah, I mean, I guess my big question um, to all new restaurateurs, especially in New York City, is, um, you know, what is what is building a community in 2022 going to look like, and how are we going to be able to do it uh, as contemporary restaurateurs uh, in this day and day and age? I think that. Um, so much of the the work that we've been doing um, over the pandemic has been driven by uh, has been driven online in some ways in, into social media based uh, communications, and I'm interested, especially once it's safer, to how we're going to begin to connect with the community. So I, I guess I would ask him how he plans to connect with the locals um, to help build community in, in Greenwich Village. Awesome, it's a great question. I will ask him. And that's the show. It always goes by so fast. <laughs> yeah, we had so much to talk about, but it went fast. Yeah, no, we could have chatted a lot longer, but I'm I'm so glad you were able to come on today and we could catch up a bit. And you're amazing. I mean, I you've my not in my opinion, everyone knows you've made it. You made it here, you're making it in Portland, you make it wherever you're you are. So um, I wish you much continued success and to see you either in New York City, Portland, or maybe at some event one of these days. <laughs> yeah, I, I promise to be back on the road soon. And, and I love coming back to New York City and, and we'll, we'll, we will connect when I return. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. My guest today has been Jim Meehan. He's bartender, journalist, and the author of the PDT Cocktail Book and Meehan's Bartender Manual, and he's the founder of Mixography, Inc. His website is mixographyinc.com, and you can follow him on social at Mixography. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry, and my websites are bayerpublicrelations.com, sherrybayer.com, and allintheindustry.com. All of our shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org, where you're also in iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Kevin, and thanks again to Jim. I'm your host and producer, Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next week with a new show. Hope you'll tune in then, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye.
All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.